You don't want to be at any other organization because there is no other business or profit-making corporation or group of people within which such eternally significant work is happening than the local church. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part 10 of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing from Pastor Paul Twiss. In this message, Pastor Paul explains how Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 shows God chose believers to be part of the local church. Pastor Paul states that although we are saved individually, we appreciate and live out our salvation corporately in the local church. He argues that God never intended our salvation to be appropriated in an individualistic manner. Why is the local church so important to believers? Well, here's part 10 of Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing. And we pick up with Pastor Paul, reminding us of how God exercised his will toward the Ephesians. God's will is a theme that permeates all the way through this passage. It doesn't get left behind after the first few verses, but actually Paul brings it up over and over and over again so that the Ephesians know, first and foremost, that God chose them. Or to say it another way, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians to know that they are the objects of God's will. They are the objects of God's will. God has exercised his will. Toward the Ephesians, and they are but the recipients. What is the will of God? Well, Paul teaches them that the will of God is holy, it is loving, and it is grace-fueled. To say just three things about his will. Paul teaches them that his will is holy, it is loving, and it is grace-fueled fueled and what he wants the Ephesians to consider consistently have in their minds is that their place in Ephesus even in the midst of trouble is a product of an outworking of the result of God's holy loving and gracious will they are not where they are by their own doing They don't happen to go to worship in the church because they chose to, but because God chose them. They are not called to a holy life because they decided that was a good idea, but because they were chosen by a holy God. They are not commended to love their brothers and sisters and to turn the other cheek when they are maligned because they think that's a good idea but because they are the outworking, the product, the result of God's holy, loving, gracious will. They are not to exercise the same grace toward their enemies that they themselves had received in the gospel from God because they see the reasonableness of such behavior, but they're to do such things because they are the objects of God's will. 
Now, how would it be that instilling that single idea into the Ephesians' theology should give them confidence? How would it be that as Paul instills in them the reality of God's will guiding everything, that that would shore them up in their identity? I'll give you an example and then we'll... Go back to the text. As I was thinking through this just this week, I was reminded of my very last appointment within the military that happened to be a very confrontational job. I was in it for only one year. I was within the submarine service, and it was my turn for an office job. So I'd been going to sea for some years, Lots of tearful goodbyes, and at the end of that appointment, it was finally my job, my turn to be given an office job. You don't have to go to sea anymore. You get to come home every night. So we were excited about this, and then I found out the details of the particular desk job that I would have, and it was, in essence, to be something akin to a a safety inspector on the site where a company was building our submarines. So we pay them billions of dollars, pounds, and they build for us our submarines. And I'm the lone naval officer on this site inspecting their work. And my particular area, my particular remit, was to look at the nuclear work on site and to ask the question, 30 years from now, Will what you're doing today result in a safe nuclear reactor? So the stakes are high. (laughs) Every day I'm looking at their work and saying, 30 years from now, will what you're doing give us a safe nuclear reactor on board our submarines? And I'm a 20-something junior officer in the Navy, And I quickly learned that this job was going to be very confrontational. The reason being is because the company that we're paying to make these submarines for us want to make the most money in the shortest time with the little amount of labor. And of course, in their mind, everything passes the test. And the reality of my job was every single day I would be in meetings uh, full of people that were telling me it's fine. I would be in boardrooms full of men many, many years older than me with much more experience than me. And my job was to say, I'm not happy with this work. I learned an awful lot that year about what confrontation should look like. I learned how to disagree. I learned how to say no. As I would drive in in the morning and I think through in my head the meetings that I had lined up for that day, I had a fair idea of just how confrontational some of those meetings would be. And again, I just, I felt my youth. I felt just the inexperience that I was bringing to the table and yet I knew my job. And so I had to figure out a way to stand my ground in those meetings to do a good job and not to fail the Navy and and my boss. And what I would do is simply think upon the fact that I'm going into these meetings with nothing to do with me, but everything to do with the person that I'm representing. So I was part of a team. The team was situated elsewhere in the country. 
I was this lone officer on site. The head of the team is a commodore, just one rank below an admiral. That was my boss. That's who I reported to. And the commodore was a wonderful man. He had been very, very kind and gracious to me as I had joined the team, and I did not want to let him down. He had given me a letter, and the letter said that all work on this site is to stop immediately. And he had signed it, and I was to carry that letter around with me everywhere. If work got really bad, I would just display the letter, and all work would stop. And every single day, as I drove into work, I just thought to myself, "I am representing this man. These meetings and these confrontations have got nothing to do with me." I told myself, "Don't take this personally. When they come after you in the meeting, it's got nothing to do with you." And you, your job is to represent the commodore, to make sure that he's happy with what you said in that meeting. I was essentially a vessel of his will on that site, and so you see the logic that Paul employs is not all that far from the way in which I thought about my confrontational job. Paul is writing to them, laboring the reality of them being the objects of God's will. He says, "You're not in this by your choosing. You can't take the credit for it, and it's no accident that things are starting to heat up a little bit now in the city of Ephesus. All of it comes under the sovereign guiding hand of God. His will was exercised towards you." And as you ponder the reality of His benevolent will invading your life when you did not seek Him, He picked you up and He saved you, and now you are destined for an inheritance. As you consider those realities, you can stand. You are equipped to do your job as a Christian. If you start to focus on you, if you lose sight of God's will in your life, and your Christianity is all about what you can do, there is no saying that you'll stand when your faith is tested. But as you consider the reality of being the object of God's benevolent will in the gospel, then you are equipped to stand. Now, God's choosing of you was not in isolation from the next part of our sentence, namely that He chose you to be part of the church. He chose you, and He didn't leave you by yourself, a, a Christian without any relationship to other Christians. But His desire, His will, was that you would be part of the church. So look with me at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Verse four: Even as He chose us in Him, that we should be holy and blameless. Verse five: He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse six. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse seven: In him we have redemption. 
verse 8, which he lavished upon us. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, until we acquire possession of it. The word church is not in this opening eulogy, but what I want to try and show you is just how replete this paragraph is with the plural pronouns. Hardly a thought goes by without Paul saying us and we. And he does, as you'll remember, talk about the mystery that God revealed to us, which in the book of Ephesians means the church. The point is, as Paul is stressing to the Ephesians, when God saved you, he called you into community with other believers. He called you into a local church. That was his design for you. He never intended for your salvation to be appreciated and appropriated in an individualistic way. He never intended that your salvation would be appreciated and appropriated in an individualistic manner. Christians are not supposed to bask in the glory of the gospel by themselves but rather we're to do so as a community endeavor. Now, I want to be very, very clear on this. God saves you individually. God saves individuals. When he justifies someone, he justifies that person based on the faith that he has given to them toward Jesus Christ. So we're saved individually, but we appreciate our salvation corporately. That's how it's supposed to work. You notice in the book of Acts, as you read through, immediately upon salvation, the believer, the brand new believer is baptized and then identifies with a local community. It would have been completely foreign to anyone in Luke's day to have received the gospel savingly and then to have done nothing about it with respect to the church. And perhaps, just as Paul sought to labor the reality of the corporate endeavor that it is to be to the praise of God's glory, Paul labored it to the Ephesians, just as he labored it, perhaps we need to do so even more. Perhaps we need to do so even more. And the reason I say that is because we live in a far more individualistic age than the Ephesians did. It is one of the plagues of our time that we identify and consider ourselves based upon our preferences. It's a fascinating study to consider throughout the history of civilization how people have defined the self. How do we understand the self? How does he understand himself? How do you understand yourself? Years ago, the definition of self would have been derived with reference to those around you. 
So if I had asked you the question some decades ago, tell me about yourself, you would have said something like, well, I'm married to this person, I'm employed by this person, I'm obligated towards this person, I have responsibilities towards these folks. That's what you need to know about me. The definition of self decades ago would have been with reference to those around the individual. Today, as a marker of our individualism, tell me about yourself. I like this, and I really enjoy this, and this is what I love to spend my time doing, with almost no mention of any sense of responsibility towards others. And so that causes problems for Christians. This is a a real issue in society, and it has bled into the local church. It is in the thinking of the local church such that Christians today do not understand the local church as the utmost priority as it relates to their salvation. It ought to be the utmost priority of the Christian to identify themselves with reference to the local church. Tell me about yourself. There is one thing you need to know. I am a member of this local church. That's how I'm defined. And with that comes the implication that I'm saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul's emphasis on the church be a great comfort to the Ephesians? Why would he labor this so as to shore them up in their identity of themselves as the pressure around them is increasing? In part, we might be tempted to say, well, there's strength in numbers. You emphasize the corporate nature of their Christianity, and sure enough, they'll find strength in their numbers. But you quickly see that can't be the logic. That can't be the logic for at least two reasons. Number one, the church that God calls you to could be very, very, very small. In God's wisdom, he might call you to a very, very, very small church, and all of a sudden, the strength in numbers argument doesn't work. Secondarily, the strength in numbers argument does work for a social club. You can go and join any organization, and if it's large enough, regardless of what marks that organization, you'll find a sense of strength in their numbers. So that can't be Paul's argument for laboring the priority of the church in the believer's life. Rather... I think it goes back to the centrality of the church in redemptive history. And we rehearse this that first night in the book of Acts. Simply stated, it is the crown jewel of redemptive history. It is the bride of Christ. It is God's chosen instrument for how he is progressing his plan of salvation. If you want to know about God's design for bringing glory unto himself that will culminate in the last day with the return of Christ and the nations praising him, you don't need to look any further than the local church because that's it. The Bible teaches us the centerpiece of God's outworking of his plan right now in redemptive history is the local church. 
I'll say it again, and you'll hear me say this again and again. It is the most significant institution on planet Earth, period. There is no other institution on planet Earth that has more significance than the local church. Any Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, local church, de facto, is the most significant institution at the point that it meets. You don't want to be anywhere else. You don't want to be at any other organization because there is no other business or profit-making corporation or group of people within which such eternally significant work is happening than the local church. If only... If only we could have eyes to see the eternal value that is being worked out every single time we meet. We would never miss church again. If we could see what God does through the singing of a hymn together. I truly believe that each and every time the church meets on the Lord's Day and sings a song of praise to God... There are things that are happening that we will only appreciate in glory. And we will stand there and say, I had no idea that that was what God was doing when we sang together. If we could only see what God is doing when corporately we bow our heads and close our eyes and together we pray to him. I truly believe in that moment he is doing eternally significant things, the likeness of which we have no comprehension. If we could but see the eternal value of the tiniest acts of service that happen on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, as one brother serves another, as one sister serves another, as someone responds to the plea, we need more workers in the nursery. I'll go because it needs to be filled. No, no, no. You'll go because you have no idea how eternally significant that act of service is. We need someone to help fold the bulletins. I'll do it because I truly believe that through this institution, unlike any other institution on planet Earth, God is doing eternally significant things in everything that we do together. So why would you choose to be anywhere else ever? When the church doors are open, I'll be there. Now it's when and only when you have located that theology of the church in your heart. When you've put it in here and you've embraced it and you've said, I'm going to choose to believe it. I don't necessarily see it. I can't see what is happening when we sing together or when I serve in the nursery, I don't see it because it's supernatural in its nature, but I'm going to choose to embrace it. When you have done that, the church becomes for you a great haven. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has just explained why believers are not supposed to bask in the glory of the gospel in isolation but as a community endeavor in the local church. He contends that the local church is God's chosen instrument to progress his plan of salvation. And he notes that when the church meets, God does eternally significant things of which we may not even be aware until we're in heaven. It is God's will that believers be part of the church. Are you part of a local church? 
If not, pray that our loving Father will lead you to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching local church where you can attend. And as a reminder, you always have an open invitation to join us at Bethany Bible Church with Pastor Paul Twist at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. If you'd like to learn more about this outreach program, what we believe and what we stand for, visit our website, TimelessTruthToday.org. That's TimelessTruthToday.org. Join us tomorrow for part 11, the conclusion of our series, Blessing God for Every Spiritual Blessing. Tomorrow's program will include a short interview with Pastor Paul. Hope you can make it then. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist and a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. <music>